you can, as a family, take math field trips. You could go to STEM museums, maker fairs, math festivals. You can find maybe a math circle for your child. Maybe at home, play math games. Maybe maybe read math storybooks aloud. There are actually fictionalized stories for young children with pictures that have math in the theme. Welcome to Kids Lab, a podcast for parents, educators, and everybody interested in STEAM education. For the first time, we're having two interview partners. We're talking to Rachel and Rodi Steinig about Math Renaissance, a book all about mathematics and how math education can be evolved in the classroom. So today we're talking to Rodi and Rachel Steinig, a mother and her daughter from Philadelphia in the USA. Together they've written the book Math Renaissance, which originally got successfully kickstarted a few years back, and it's all about growing math circles, changing the classroom, and creating sustainable math education. Rachel Steinig is a junior at the University of Pennsylvania studying political science with a concentration in international relations and a focus on Latin America and the Middle East. She has a multitude of diverse math experiences and wants kids to know what math really is and she wants adults to know what kids experience in hopes of improving math education for everyone. Rachel has grown up on math circles as a participant, planner and leader and is passionate about learning math through inquiry. She is interested in human rights, refugee crises, and the effects of climate change on the global order, and plans on working in international law and foreign policy. So over to Rodi, her mother and our second interview guest. Rodi has led the Talking Stick Math Circle since 2011. She's the National Association of Math Circles mentor, blogs about math, again you'll find the link in the show notes, and is also a homeschooling parent. In Rodi's own words, she wants to awaken the children's inner mathematicians, to shepherd the unfolding of their abstract reasoning, and to disabuse them from the notion that math is about memorizing a bunch of facts and algorithms. Rodi has a Bachelor of Science in Economics and a Master in Education from Cabrini College, and her initial math circle training was through the gentle guidance of Bob and Ellen Kaplan. Her current field of interest is the philosophy of mathematics. So for this episode, we don't have so many pictures to look at this time, but it's still worth to check out kidslab.dev for many links to their book, the articles and the websites mentioned, and of course, also some background information. Hi, Rodi and hi, Rachel. It's really great to have you both on the show. How are you both doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to be here, too. Thank you for having us. And um, Sven, thank you for backing our book on Kickstarter as well. And we're very happy to be sharing the work we've been doing with your audience. Cool. You're very welcome. So, Rachel, I would have a first question for you for this interview. Um, in your article that's called Stop Ruining Math, you give a lot of reasons why many people, for many people, math is ruined. And uh, what's, by the way, totally amazing is I believe you've written this article at the age of 16, I believe. So, but you can correct me if that's totally wrong. So, what are the most common reasons why students are fed up with math? 
Yeah, definitely. So to write this article, um, I conducted a pretty informal survey of a lot of my friends and acquaintances, asking them about their math experiences. And then I took those responses and categorized them into broad themes about various issues that people have had with math. Um, so I can just run through a few of those really prominent themes that I saw a lot of. Um, the first main one is that a lot of, for a lot of people, the classes were either above or below their level, um, and they either were in a way over their head and were super overwhelmed, or were just sitting there bored in class all day. So that was one issue. And then another kind of bucket of issues that I saw was the attitudes of people around them towards math impacting their math experiences. So that could include the attitudes of teachers. A lot of people talked about how they had really mean math teachers or their teachers were really intimidating. Um, people also talked about their parents putting a lot of stress on them um, to succeed in math or be really good at math. And it felt very forced from like the parental standpoint. And then lastly, in terms of attitudes, they also talked about other students being too afraid to ask questions in class or to like tell the teacher if they didn't understand something. So in general, people just have a lot of fear about math um, that can kind of come from society, can also come from their interpersonal interactions and like their peers as well as their teachers. Um, and this fear also really ties into a fixed mindset instead of a growth mindset meaning that a lot of people I talked to were just like, I'm just really bad at math or I'm not a math person and kind of thought they were a lost cause. Um, but studies actually show that if you think that you can improve at something, you're much more likely to improve at something. So this fixed mindset is really actually harming their educational outcomes. And so I, I assume that this survey was performed in the U.S., right, among your friends and, and, and peers, basically. Do you think that's something that applies to many other places on this earth? Yeah, so it's definitely hard for me to speak to a more international context, since, as you mentioned, this survey was conducted in the U.S. Um, but I would assume that while some of the specific situations about, like, Uh, the specific problems with the way math is taught may be more specific to the U.S., as I'm not really familiar with the education systems in all countries. My guess would be that some of the attitudes may um, kind of be present across different cultures. Some of that fear may be present across different cultures. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really sure, but most of these are just pretty specific to the U.S. issues. So when it comes to solutions, what, what could teachers and parents do about that or other people involved in this whole math problem? So let's talk first about what, what teachers can do. Um, Rochelle Gutierrez, in her talk, Rehumanizing Mathematics, suggests that teachers do something she calls the mirror test. She suggests that teachers and mathematicians look into the mirror and say, am I doing what I set out to do? And if not, what am I going to do about it? In terms of what people can do about it, if they're realizing that in their classrooms, their visions are not coming to fruition, is um, teachers can find 
opportunities to explore the mathematical process versus the product. They can do that with their students. They can do that on their own. And when I say they, I really mean we, because I'm a teacher too. Um, Teachers can attend math teacher circles in the U.S. There are a lot of good videos online, a lot of great mathematical YouTubers. There's Vi Hart. There are the number file videos. There's a YouTuber named Eddie Wu in Australia who's a high school and middle school math teacher, and he just videos his class, and they're amazing to watch. There are also mathematicians who post interesting videos on YouTube about deep mathematical topics. There's Emily Real, there's Eugenia Chang, there's James Tanton. Um, When you talk about teachers in the classroom, what a lot of teachers in the U.S. are doing is having one time a week doing a math circle exploration where they turn their mathematics classroom into more of a math circle and explore the mathematical process. If you were a teacher wanting to start doing something like that, I'd recommend going on to the website Math Pickle. And on the website Math Pickle, there's a section called K-12 Unsolved, which are unsolved problems in mathematics that people have been working on for decades or longer presented in a way that, that children can understand. Another thing teachers can do is maybe bring a little bit of math history into their classrooms or educate themselves about math history. There's a lot of there are a lot of good books out there connecting mathematics to history. Um, in terms, we can also talk about what parents can do. And um, one thing parents can do is when your child comes home from school, you can say to your child each day, what's one thing you learned in math today? You can, as a family, take math field trips. You could go to STEM museums, maker fairs, math festivals. You can find maybe a math circle for your child. Maybe at home, play math games. Maybe... Maybe read math storybooks aloud. There are actually fictionalized stories for young children with pictures that have math in the theme. Um, There are also ways that all of us, parents, members of society, can get comfortable with the real-life applications of math. One thing I recommend for people who are are lay people is the book Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. For people who are more well-versed in higher-level math. A book I just read recently was called The Case Against Reality by Hoffman. It's about evolution and physics, where he uses mathematics to prove points about science. And um, Rachel, you can talk about what we as society in general can do. Yeah, I think that as a society, we need to make conditions better for teachers. Um because a lot of teachers, especially public school teachers within the United States, feel really stuck with curriculum and a testing craze and a lack of funding for their schools um, that make it really, really hard to be a teacher and to implement any of these wonderful suggestions that Rhody just had about in- in- about integrating uh, inquiry-based lessons. So I think we need to make things better for teachers. Um, and then also just in general, education reform. Um, at least in the U.S., you can vote for candidates whose education policies you agree with. You can lobby your legislators to create better education policy, um, to create more equitable school funding formulas, um, and just becoming civically engaged and engaged in the schools in your community and your local school district can have a really big difference. 
Very cool. So it sounds like there's a lot we can actually do. We just have to do it really, right? So Rodi, um, you mentioned uh, the term math circle a couple of times already. So what exactly is a math circle? Because I think it might be relatively unknown, especially outside of the US. I'm not sure if it's so known in the US. Um, so what is a math circle? So so actually math circles began in Eastern Europe, in um, Russia and Poland and Ukraine, um, many years ago, and they've kind of moved in their popularity to the U.S., and they're becoming pretty popular here, and now they're spreading back out to the rest of the world. And what it is, it's an, generally an enrichment activity where students get together as a group, and they investigate what I'd call interesting problems, where they do things that are actual problems versus exercises. Exercises is sit down and do your homework and do the same um, kind of problem over and over and over to develop fluency, to develop mastery, that's usually not what math circles are about, where instead students are given some problem they've never seen before and have to discuss it, have to engage in mathematical thinking by positing conjectures, by inventing um, mathematical methods to solve it. Eventually, the long-term goal would be to try to prove something um, And it's more about the process than the product most of the time. Now, there are many different types of math circles. The goals can vary from one math circle to another. Some math circles have the goal of exposing students to the rich content of mathematics beyond what students learn in school or exposing students to the beauty of mathematics. To some, some math circles are there to foster appreciation and joy among the students. Some math circles are there for students who already love and excel at math, and it's there to challenge them and to provide them with more opportunities to delve deeper. Math circles are there to help students in see the creativity that there is in mathematics. And I think most, most math circles also hope to develop students' conceptual understanding of mathematics beyond algorithms. Um, and, and not only can the goals vary for math circles, but the actual model of a math circle can vary. Some math circles are there to prepare students for math competition. Some math circles are there to actually instruct students in the kind of mathematics that they're expected to learn in their education. Some, some math circles have a piece of it where there's some direct instruction. Other math circles use a pure inquiry-based learning approach um, where the instructor pretty much says nothing after positing the question and the instructor is there to just facilitate and to record. Um, in the model, there's a, there's a book called Teaching With Your Mouth Shut by Finkel and he puts out there this model of How can students learn if the instructor isn't feeding them information? And a lot of math circles follow that model. Mm -hmm. So, Rodi, how, how old are the typical participants of, of math circles? Are these more the younger kids or the, the older kids? So, like secondary school children or so? So, in, in the United States, most math circles are in what we call here in the U.S. the K-12 world, kindergarten through the end of high school. The majority of them are for high school students. Um, 
There are a lot out there for middle school students, and people are starting to do more and more with younger students. I run a math circle, and we have students as young as four in it. Um, and usually, math circles are grouped by age, so you wouldn't have, say, six-year-olds in the same group as um, somebody who's 15 years old. Um, so it really can vary. So let's talk a bit about uh, a positive math learning experience. And uh, that's something I think you you pointed out to me that there's a video that you're totally fascinated about by Rochelle Gutierrez. And you, you already mentioned her. And I think she also put out these kind of dimensions of a positive learning experience. Can you talk a little bit about what what a math a positive math learning experience is all about? Yeah, let me let me talk about this from two different frameworks. So From the framework of pure mathematics, this is just my opinion, I think there are three big signs that students are having a positive math learning experience. I think one sign is that if you're doing some math with some students and the time is up, that the students ask for more, that they don't want it to end. Um, I think that contrast to what a lot of students experience, which is actually seeing math as drudgery, where it's something to just get, o get it over with and be done with. The second thing I see as a positive math learning experience is that students are asking a lot of questions about the math that they're working on, which differs from some students' math experience, which is to memorize a bunch of algorithm and apply them. So if you're just memorizing algorithms and applying them, you're not going to be asking a lot of questions, especially questions that are about why. Why do we do this? Why do we do it that way? Is this the only way to do it? Wouldn't it be interesting if we looked at it that way? And the third thing that I think indicates that students are having a positive math experience is that if they're expressing a lot of doubt about what they're learning, If they're wondering things like, yeah, I think that might work in this instance, but maybe not in others, or I don't think this is even true. I don't even, I don't even think that um, a line is something that even exists in real life or, or questions like that. Whereas typical math class, some typical math classrooms expect students to just accept things on faith. This is what it is. This is how you do it. And um, you just have to believe this is true. Now, if we talk about Rachel Gutierrez and her teachings on rehumanizing mathematics, um, what, what she means by rehumanizing mathematics is she wants to use math to reattach humans to each other and to the earth. So she talks about, um, in her video, things you might see in a classroom that is rehumanizing math mathematics. And she has a list of eight things that to look for if you're hoping that, um, that the math is taught in a real humanistic way. So one, one thing she says you might see in a classroom is the authority shifting from the teacher to the students. You might see students reconnecting with their histories, with their roots. This, she also says that students can see themselves in the connect curriculum and see the others around them in the curriculum with people connecting to each other. 
She also looks for students thinking of math as a verb and not of a noun. In other words, math is, a, is um, if I'm understanding her correctly, a way, that, a way to think, not a list of facts you should know. She looks for students seeing mathematics more qualitatively, not just a list of symbolic ways of expressing things. Um, because when students are looking at things more qualitatively, it shows that they're really thinking and not just memorizing a bunch of symbols and procedures. She's, um, Gutierrez is looking to see students inventing new forms of math, or at least forms that are new to the students. Students can invent things that someone else invented 100 years ago, and that's great. And that student's really um, owning the math. She also looks to see if... Um, People's bodies and emotions are involved. Um, Gutierrez says that dehumanization of mathematics starts when students are told, don't count on your fingers. And then finally, she says she, she looks for ownership, that the students really own the math, that there's a desire to play with the math, to express themselves through math, and to ask questions. Wow, it's a, it's a bit. So we'll have, of course, this link to um, Rochelle Gutierrez in the show notes, so people can definitely watch that video. And it's pretty amazing. I've watched it. So, um, Rachel, I would have one more question for you, and that's about um, some of the typical errors that teachers make, and and what what implications it has on the students. So I think that in my personal experience, and in the experiences of a lot of people that I've talked to. Creating a supportive classroom culture is really key because a lot of people have had really negative math experiences that feel really humiliating to them um, with teachers who put a lot of pressure on them to achieve certain things or teachers who they themselves may have very fixed mindsets about who is good at math and who isn't good at math. And they may have very like racist or sexist stereotypes about like which of their students naturally are going to succeed and which aren't. Um, like I myself have been in some math classes where it's like really only ever like the boys who were called on. So I think that uh, classroom environments that really enforce um, certain discriminatory biases that we have in society can be really detrimental to all students, not even just um, the students who are more personally impacted by them. Um, and then from like a more curriculum or pedagogical standpoint, um, it can be really challenging for students when the teacher only teaches math from a perspective that really just focuses on memorizing algorithms um, and spitting back answers just on tests rather than um, more actual like inquiry or experimentation or project-based things. Um, and then also... A big issue for a lot of students is that the teachers themselves may not be like very well versed in math or may not really have enough of a ba math background to be able to adequately teach the students. Like this is especially a problem in elementary schools in the U.S. since like elementary school teachers will like teach all of the subjects and like they themselves may not know that much math. Um, so that can actually be like a really big issue if your teacher doesn't know math. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the issues that I have found. And I believe, I mean, sometimes I guess the, the curriculums must be relatively tight, right? And they have probably, um, lesson plans. Each, every single lesson of the school year has a, has a plan probably. 
And so are our teachers actually able to to change their their lessons? Is this kind of possible or are they so tied down that this is actually not possible? Yeah, I mean, that's really the issue is that teachers, especially public school teachers, are extremely constrained by the curriculum and by standardized testing um, because, at least in the United States, standardized test results can determine school funding, can determine whether teachers keep their jobs or not, um, and can really determine so many things. And there also are strict curriculum um, that teachers do have to follow. So it can be really challenging for teachers, especially if they're teaching in a school district where like a lot of the children don't have their basic needs met um, to kind of implement more of like the inquiry-based or project-based modes of education. So I guess all, you teachers are already put under so much stress and pressure that they can really only do um, like what they are able to. And I guess definitely true that teachers in like private schools or like teachers who aren't teaching in really underfunded school districts may have more ability to do this, um, which is just even sadder because it's really the kids in the most underfunded school districts that actually need these kind of techniques the most, you know, not already the privileged kids who have a lot of supplemental math education from their parents. Um, so yeah, I do think there is a uh, The possibility for change, though, and I think that some of it does need to come at the classroom level from teachers, like from parents. But I do think that a lot of it does need to come from systemic education reform that more equitably funds schools and um, that takes away a bit of the focus on standardized testing. So there's more flexibility in the classroom. A question to to both of you, and I think initially Rodi, um, that's about your your book and in that book there's a section called how to not ruin math and i got very interested in that section that's uh, entitled technology and games uh, being a technologist of course and the question here is um and i was uh, asking myself this question is is it actually okay to to teach math alone or is it better to combine math with something so math plus technology math plus some games and i immediately said Yes, of course, because this sounds like project-based education. And I know that Paul Goldenberg, for example, he's trying to combine math with programming. And it, it sounds like a lot of fun to me to kind of combine math with something. But I think there are different opinions. So I wanted to ask you, what's your opinion on this? Is math alone enough? Or would you always try to combine it with something to make it easier to digest for the kids or so? So I think what you're asking is something that people have been asking for thousands of years, literally. Mathematicians from 2,000 years ago have been saying, should we use inductive reasoning where you start with the specifics and then come up with generalizations? Or should we use deductive reasoning where we start with the general and work to the specific? And that's kind of the same question as people say, science versus math, theoretical math versus applied math, purely abstract versus hands-on. And, and, and I think that um, doing both can, first of all, help students, teachers, parents, and mathematicians and humans to just think up what are the questions we should be asking. You need a context, possibly, um, to even develop ideas about abstract mathematics and logic and what is the underlying structure of everything. So I, I think that it there's a place for it, it especially if it um, helps motivate your students. Um, some students can be motivated starting at the abstract level purely with really interesting questions. Um, 
and some can't. And the other thing I think that's important about this is that we talk about it with students. We talk to students about what is the difference between math and science? What is the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning? What is the difference between theoretical and applied math? And as long as we're acknowledging with our students what we're doing and why we're doing it, I think that's another way to humanize mathematics. Yeah, so you have to choose what's best for the job, basically, right? So it, no, no answer is really correct, but uh, in the end, it always boils down to the to the student in the end, right? So, yeah, I, I think it's it's an it's a reasonable end goal to move towards abstraction as much as you can, but you have to meet students where they are and ease them along that road in a lot of cases. Yeah, I agree. So. We're already coming pretty much to the end of, of our half an hour of recording time, but I would like to ask you both one question, and that is um, what's, what is currently in your mind when it comes to math? Is there something that you wanted to definitely share with us on this podcast? Yes, the thing I'd like to share is the idea that math is for everyone, that it's not just certain people or from certain backgrounds or people wanting to go into certain fields that math is important and, and relevant for that math mathematical thinking is connected to our humanity and um there's a video and a transcript by mathematician francis sue called math is for human flourish mathematics for human flourishing which Sven, i think you put up on the website and he explains it so eloquently that every single human can benefit from the the beauty of math and from mathematical thinking. So Rachel, is there something you wanted to share? Is there something in your head right now about math mathematics or are you just thinking about Mexico and going abroad? Which <laughs> 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 is where you're going to study, right? So yes, it must yes. be exciting too. Yeah, I think that I have really been thinking more at the macro level, especially as someone who's studying like public policy, um, that it's really hard to have like successful math education experiences in the classroom or kind of like how I touched on earlier, it's really hard for teachers to implement um, these more inquiry-based methods of education um, without education reform at the macro level um, that essentially focuses on fair school funding um, for public schools um, because especially just in the U.S., the funding for schools is so, so unequal and that it's really based a lot on property taxes. So if you live in a poor neighborhood, you're going to have a really poor and underfunded school. Um, so you really can't have amazing math experiences for children if their basic needs aren't met. And if they're going to school in a school where there aren't enough teachers or there aren't counselors um, or nurses even. Um, so I guess I just have in my mind the tension of the trying our best as individuals, um, as teachers or parents or students to change our math experiences. And that is like super important and valid, but also the tension that it's it's really challenging to do these things without macro level reform. Cool. So Rodi and Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Um, Rachel, I wish you all the best in Mexico studying. And Rodi, I wish you all the best for your future math circles, of course. Thank you so much for being on this podcast again. You're welcome, Sven. Thank you, too. Bye-bye.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. The last letter of STEAM is M, and while we often talk about science, technology, engineering, and arts, I really must agree to a listener that pointed out that math is often a bit short in the news. So I hope to have more about math very soon. If you know some great people, please let me know, and of course visit kidslab.dev to get in touch.